It's that time of the week again. You are about to participate in a great adventure. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop? What the hell do you think you're doing? It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris. Oh my God! As they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. As well as the music of today. Excuse me while I whip this out. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Who are those guys? Digital Kill the Radio Star starts Come on, quit stalling! All right, everybody, welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. As always, I am your host, David, and I've got my buddy Chris on the line. And Chris, it's been a while since we've done one of these. How have you been? Good. I'm not a host myself. You said I was always your host. I don't get to be a part of it. Oh, I'm sorry. My co-host, <laughs> or no, my host. He's not even a co-host. He's, he's my equal, Mr. Chris Craig, everyone. Uh, thank you. No, oh, I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? Or Chris from Digital Killed. <laughs> we won't give your last name. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't make me any bit of difference. Oh care. man, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm good. Um, we're recording this on Father's Day, so uh, happy Father's Day to everybody out there. Hope everybody's doing well. the The summer has finally gotten here, and the heat and humidity is here, so it's uh, time for David to hibernate for a couple of months. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm doing well, and uh, this episode is just we don't really have a topic or anything. We're just going to kind of talk a little bit about the state of music and a few a few notes of news that have trickled out this week. Uh, honestly, it's kind of a slow time because normally everybody's out touring right now. Uh, and th- that makes headlines and a lot of artists are pushing back their releases of, of albums. And uh, obviously nobody is, is touring on any scale whatsoever. So, uh, it's kind of a dead time when normally this is kind of the, the big time for music people. Yeah, it is. It's it sucks. It's depressing. Yeah, and um, right now I know somebody I saw on on our Facebook page asked us to talk talk about when we thought shows would happen. And I, I guess at this point, there's there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow just yet. I don't know. I don't know when it's going to be. And you know, and I'm I'm honestly I'm not even the biggest summer tour package guy anyway i'm still that guy that goes like the small shows but i still do go uh, it does still happen to go to the summer tours and see if these things were planned months and months ago um gone gone to 2021 i mean i think a a year away for some of these shows and my god hopefully they happen at that point um Well, well i spoke off the record with a musician last sunday who is uh who is a touring musician with a couple of national national bands that uh, that they you know can do two and 
2,000 seat type shows and I asked him when um, when do you think you're going to tour again and he said we've been told not to think not to look at anything until spring of next year and uh, that, that's that's from a guy that's in a band that, that can do you know up to 2,000 seat arena you know theaters so um, I, I think it's going to be a while and I, I wonder I really wonder what the market is going to be when we come back because there's just a finite number of sh- of buildings, finite number of dates, and with at one point twenty five percent of the workforce unemployed, uh, discretionary spending is going to be uh, probably down even at that point. Well, you've got a lot of variables to play into that. Yes, the income. You know, that people hopefully will be bouncing by the time this comes back. You know, if we're, if we're looking at maybe early twenty twenty one, things can get rolling. Maybe who knows? Maybe at the end of a uh, 2020, you can at least have more of the the small packages, you know, not the big time ones, but some of the small shows, small venue shows. Maybe we will have that uh, discretionary income. Yeah, that that does play a factor. Um, some people are still going to be scared to get out. I myself, I'll go to a show tomorrow. That's just the way I am. Call me an idiot. Call me whatever. But I'm I'm ready to go. But you know, the scary part of this is, I've seen that. Um, I've seen this, you've probably seen the same thing, where people have said that maybe as high as 90% of, of music venues, they don't make it. You know, And we're not talking about, uh, being that I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, I'll use an example, the, the FedEx Forum for the big, the really big shows, the Orpheum Theater, or looking over into Nashville, the Ryman, or Bridgestone Arena. We're not talking about that. We're talking about all the little clubs where you go see most of the bands that I love. Um, they're not big venues. I've seen that about 90% of them could close their doors and never open. And you know what? That seems very realistic. I mean, how are these people going to continue to pay? That said, I don't think it's going to be not that they go. It, it's sad for the people that own it, that it's, they're going to lose their business and they're going to have to shut down. But I do believe if, um, for example, a, a place in Memphis that I've recently gone to for shows, you went with me once, David, but growlers, I could see a place like that falling victim to, you know, to this crisis we're going through, but I think somebody else will come in and buy it and start anew. But it's still, it's unfortunate for those that are going to have to close shop and it's going to happen. Oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen to a lot of them. Um, I would like to, honestly, I would like to see some of these people, like, I think I've seen Dave Grohl maybe doing this. Some of these bands that are just have really, you know, I mean, Dave Grohl is never going to be hurting for money step up some of these places that took care of them when they were coming up and, and float them for a little bit, you know? Um, obviously Dave Grohl is somebody that could do that. Metallica obviously could do that for some of those places in San Francisco. But, um, you know, the big, the, I guess the biggest headline this week is, is this new, I don't know if you want to call it a contract or new business model that live nation is trying to, uh, get all these artists to sign off on. Um, where they could be uh, penalized for uh, not selling a lot of tickets, and and you know, and if they if a show has to be canceled or whatever, they could be penalized monetarily, and really kind of putting it on the backs of the artist for um, you know ticket sales, and uh, you know a lot of people are upset about that, and I've kind of um, just with my Black Crows podcast with some of the people I've talked with, kind of understand more like what Live Nation does, and I've always said if you wanted to make a case for capitalism. Walmart is your best argument, and if you want to make a case against capitalism, Walmart's your best argument. In that, Walmart buys stuff in bulk, sells it cheap, it's easy to get, everybody can go get it, 
the downside is it puts the mom and pop places out, out of business wherever they go in and which that ultimately affects the economy as well live nations kind of the same argument so kind of what they did like with the black crows they come to the black crows and say we're going to give you x millions of dollars up front and you're basically going to be ours we're going to own you and you're going to tour when we tell you to tour and, and you know and we're going to pay you this advance and then everything you make above it you know you, there's a prorated amount well what live nation started doing years ago was used to you would have like a promoter let's say who was the big promoter in memphis i, I forget when we were growing up you used to always hear it on the uh, on the radio anyway whatever the promoter was in memphis they took on all the liability so let's say guns and roses was coming to town all right and the promoter rents the pyramid, which is where Guns N' Roses would have played. So they rent the pyramid, and then Guns N' Roses, my understanding with most of the big acts and, and the medium-sized acts, most of them have a flat fee. So let's say Guns N' Roses back in the early 90s, their flat fee was $200,000 to show up. So you go out and you promote the show and you sell the tickets. So you've basically hired, it would be like, you know, hiring me to come to your house to clean or whatever. I've hired you to, for, for a function. So I've hired Guns N' Roses to come. I'm taking on all the liability because th their job is to come and play music. It's not to do anything else. And so Live Nation has gone out and not only have they signed all these artists to um, these touring deals, they've gone out and bought the bulk of the venues. So now Live Nation owns the artists, they own the venue, they own the parking, they own, you know, the concessions. And so they have tied people into these like touring contracts. And now they're saying, you know, hey, if the show doesn't sell well, we're not going to pay you as much or whatever. Where in the past, you basically you're paying you're paying me to show up and then it's up to you to sell the tickets. You know, it, it's up to you to do everything. And so now they're wanting to, to go back on all of this and, and penalize these artists for things. But yet Live Nation still holds, really holds the, has the all the leverage because they own the venue. Go look at all the venues that Live Nation owns now. It's it's crazy. Uh, and so it's kind of like, you know, when Pearl Jam wanted to fight Ticketmaster and then they realized, hey, Ticketmaster has contracts with all the best venues and stuff like that. So uh, it, it's it's really unfortunate, and you, you've seen every artist to a person talking about how this isn't, you know, this isn't fair, this isn't right, and it could, you know, the, already the only way you can make money is touring, and, uh, you know, with your merchandise and your meet and greets, but you have to, in order to have a meet and greet, you have to have a concert, and so uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes, because um, the artists almost don't have a choice but to sign with them. Yeah, and I, and I, when this, when I first saw the story, I saw a couple of people talk about it, and I, that's when I, I, I sent you that article that you, you went ahead and did the heavy lifting and read through it. But um, I saw Gary Holt of, of Exodus Slayer say that this arrangement they're they're pushing said may, this may basically be the death knell for many rock and metal bands. You know, so I don't know. I mean more positive news for the music industry, right? I know. I know. It's um, it's really, really sad. And, it, you know, I, I, I feel for them. And uh, if one of, the, one of the big takeaways that I've gotten from us doing this podcast is people don't make as nearly as much money as we thought they did. And, no, and I mean... How, and how hard it is. Like, when, when they get that chunk, they get that check every night, there's a lot of people have their hands in that pot before it gets to them. 
Well, the thing is, most of the people that I listen to, and don't get me wrong, I do listen to some big artists. You know, I, y'all, you know, anybody listening knows this. You know, I, I, Springsteen. I mean, you can't make much more money than Springsteen makes, but as an as a uh, recording artist, that is. But a, a lot of people I listen to. I mean, the reality is they're probably struggling to make rent. You know, a lot of a lot, and, and and seriously, a lot of the bands, a lot of the artists we listen to, they. We think not only are they not making a lot of money like people think, but that's not their main source of income. They go home and they go to work. Right. They have jobs. Right. You know, that they can't the music business does not even pay them enough to pay their bills. So right. yeah. So yeah, you're right. They're not making much. Well, Chris, uh, on a on a brighter note a little bit, um, with all this kind of downtime we've had or whatever, um, there's been a lot of opportunities to watch um, Netflix documentaries or just documentaries in general. Have you watched any lately that you really liked? Yeah, I watched off uh, Amazon Prime the other day. I watched, uh, and unfortunately I can't remember the name of it, but I watched the documentary on the police. And I'm not, I don't really consider myself a police fan. I, I don't dislike them at all. And, but I, and I like, I like it. I guess I would call myself a greatest hits kind of guy with the police, which there's a lot. And, <laughs> yeah. And it, it was, it was a really good documentary and it was, I thought it was, it was different. It was done in a different way because Andy Summers had, he put out a book however many years ago. And this was basically based off of his book. It's about a, I don't know, maybe hour 20, hour and a half long documentary. And he narrates the whole thing. And he, I think he's, it sounds like as if he's reading his book through it. And it kind of goes back and forth from the past and into when they're, um, when they did that reunion tour back probably about 10 years ago. And I thought it was very well done. Uh, these, these guys, a uh, few things about this is the, um, it was one thing, a couple takeaways with this is they always felt Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers from the beginning it's like they always had this feeling that Sting was going to leave. And he always gave them that vibe. And they, it was kind of weird. And, you know, and, and they weren't together that long. I think they were together about six years. But there was just that gut. And then Sting started talking more as if he was going to go. He was, take, he was taking the credit, I think, a lot of times for everything they did and not really giving it to, to Copeland and, and Andy Summers. But, um, yeah, it just looked like there was no way that that band was – ever had a chance at continuing because Sting they knew was a star. That's the thing. They knew he was a star. He was getting all the attention. But the fact is, the police, you know, one of the more talented bands. I mean, a trio, and they were, I mean, when you think of trios and you think of musicianship, obviously you think of people like Rush. But you know, Stuart Copeland's one of the great rock drummers of all time. Yeah, he's just, Sum- one, just one of the great drummers, period. Yeah, Andy Summers. Well, yes, because he's a jazz guy, too. Yeah. And Andy Summers is a jazz guitarist. And Sting is a really good bass player. And that's he's the forgotten one, honestly, when it comes to musicianship. Because you see, being that I'm not the huge fan, when they're showing clips of them playing, playing live, and you see some of the – you see what he's playing on the bass, and it it's not simple, you know, keep up with the drummer patterns. I mean, he's not locked in with that drummer. And, yeah, he's a very, very talented player. And the other thing about this is Andy Summers was uh, he was a good bit older than them. I think he was about ten to twelve years old, older, and uh, 
because he had he was establishing a career before that before the police do, ever took do, off. Do, do you know how much? Do you know how old Andy Summers is? I think he's seventy seven. Yeah, I just he's like he's a lot older than Sting and Copeland. So he was. Yeah, he was. He played with Eric Burden in the new reformed animals. Mm-hmm. Um, he, it was in, um, what was it Melody Maker? I believe when the stones were going to get a new guitarist, I guess this would have been when Ron Wood came in and he saw his name mentioned as somebody that they were considering. And it just obviously blew him away. So that shows you, I mean, that a, that shows you how good he is. B that shows you how old he is. Right. You know, the back in the seventies, the stones were considering him. Right. And a lot of people like to lump the police in it being an '80s band. I mean, a lot of their their biggest hits were in the late '70s. You know, they yeah. they, they broke up in what '84. Like Synchronicity came out. Yeah, and they played. They actually were starting out as more of a punk band. And Andy Summers didn't really want to play punk. You know, he did psychedelic music. He did. Then, he, like I said, he was with Eric Burden. Punk wasn't really what he wanted to do. But Copeland and you got to think the Clash, the Sex Pistols, all that was blowing up over in the UK and Sting basically said punk is what's it's what you got to do to get noticed now and they were a little bit more punk and then they became obviously just more of a pop radio type band but yeah that was a really good documentary and then I watched one on um I don't remember the name of this either but you I mean you can put in word words on this was I believe on Netflix should be able to just type in New York hardcore and it should come up but there is a a documentary on the hardcore scene of New York and, and David, I'll make this, I'm going to talk a little probably longer than you wanted me to on this one, but it's just cause it's going to segue into something else and then we'll get to whatever you've been watching. But, um, I recently, I, I finished Roger Moret's book and I honestly, I don't know if it's Moret Murray, but agnostic front front man, it's called my riot. And I'd, I'd read some good things about this book. It's, uh, and it really, it really was good. It's, um, I mean, this, it's kind of painful in the beginning because the guy went through such a terrible, terrible, terrible childhood of, uh, major abuse from his stepfather. I mean, just a terrible human being his stepfather was, they had a very rough upbringing and he eventually moved out and he was on the streets squatting all that in his teens. And, but he tells a lot about that New York hardcore scene and it was pretty violent. It was pretty, it was, it was a rough, rough time, but I, I'm fascinated by these, these, how do you call it? These in music, these different, um, man, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but these different eras of music. And, and this was a cool story of New York city in the lower East side. A scene, a scene. Thank you. Thank God. Why could I not think of that? I love reading about these scenes and I'm not the biggest hardcore fan. I like a decent amount of it. But I was more just fascinated by the scene. And this documentary on New York hardcore scene does a lot, except for there's about a 15-minute spot that focuses a lot on graffiti, which was just boring. And you know, I, they could have done without that. But, um, yeah, it's it's a scene that's that's been around since, I guess, the early 80s. And it does still exist. It's different now. Because, you know, when we go to New York now and we see that city – you go to Lower East Side, you go to the East Village, it's very hipster. It's uh, major gentrification. And to, to really put in, to, nothing to, does a better job of explaining how gentrified it is than CBGB is now owned by, well, who's the designer? You know what I'm talking about? Um, no. 
uh, I can't think of his name, famous designer. And they may hold a music thing every now and then, but for the most part, it's a retail <laughs> shop. And that's really what's happened to the scene. Back then, it was crumbling buildings, homeless, uh, major, 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 major drug dealing. And in, it, Roger Merritt, he tells in the story that he later found out that they liked that hardcore scene. The police did. That's why they weren't really trying to break it up. And they weren't trying to just go arrest all these guys because they wanted them to push out all the drug dealers. And, and it was basically their way of gentrify, gentrification of New York. But, um, yeah, that documentary is cool. If you just, if you're like me and you like to see it, whether, whether I listen to it or not, you know, there's a, I don't listen to, um, I don't listen to death metal. Really? I really don't listen to it. There's one on death metal that I want to watch because it's always fascinating to me. But that was a good documentary. That book was really good. And the book was as bad as his Roger's life was. It's very happy at the end because he's talking about how he has his kids and his kids get to have the life that, that you know he didn't get to have. They don't have to go through that childhood he did. They have, they have a good home. They have stability. Um, and, it, and it's basically at the end where he lived fast expected to die young he talks about now he he loves his life and he doesn't want to die and he's really happy and it's it's a very cool story about somebody who survived the the worst of worst upbringings is that the and guy that lives in the build same building that he's always lived in no that's stigma that's, that's Vinny stigma the guitarist uh, roger lives in uh arizona because he met a girl from Colorado and she went to Arizona and he just fell head over heels for her and he moved over to be with her, got married to her, moved over there. And he talks about, <laughs> I'm not saying in the same building, he does talk about how he doesn't tour nearly as much now. And he said at first, you know, he basically they can't, he was, it wasn't going to be his main source of income. He's an electrician. And he did talk about how Vinny lives in a rent controlled apartment. He mentioned that Vinny lives in a rent controlled apartment, basically as a way of him being able to stay living in New York city. Right. But, but yeah, same building his entire life, which is just crazy to me. Speaking of scenes, have you watched that murder in the front row documentary? No, but that's another one I do want to watch. You're going to salivate over it. it yeah. You, well, you know, honestly, I'm not even, I, I like a lot of the thrash bands, but I don't even consider myself a thrash well, they, guy. They, they focus a lot of it on uh, Exodus. And, yeah, uh, and um, anyway, well, they're really one of the. They, you can make an argument they were the first ones. It's really, uh, it's 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 really good. It's really interesting. They have a decent cross section of people that they uh, that they interviewed for. Um, but yeah, it's it's ba- it's basically about the scene, and um, kind of and <laughs> it starts off like with a. Uh, I think I think no, I think the end of it says something from X that says we still haven't recorded a ballad or something like that. Um, and it'll never happen. <laughs> Not I, with those guys. I stumbled upon a documentary yesterday on all right, first of all, I think I've asked you this before. Do you don't have access T V, do you? I don't. Okay. They are great for like concerts and documentaries. I recorded one last night. I've got to watch it's the rise and the fall of the clash. Um and uh so I'm gonna have that one, but on, it's on Netflix. It's like the story of Adam Lambert and Queen and how Adam Lambert came to be the lead singer of Queen and just like, I always kind of, you know, do you remember like 10 years ago, Paul Rogers fronted Queen for a while? Yeah, I do. Which, I mean, everybody would agree Paul Rogers has one of the greatest rock voices of all time, even if you don't like 
you know, free or bad company or, or whatever. Um, you know, I just felt like he never fit because his was more of a blues based kind of voice, you know, and they go into like, they played with Adam Lambert on American Idol because he wanted to play a Queen song. It's like the finale or whatever. And they just, when it was over with, were kind of like looking at each other like, that kid's really good. And it goes into how like people think he was like an overnight sensation. Like he wasn't. This guy sang like in the theater. He sang like on cruise ships, you know. I mean, he really he really worked. And it just goes into like how much respect they have for him. And and they talk about how like they don't think there's anybody else that could that could sing these songs. And um and it goes to show you just how big they are. Like I'll be honest with you, I'm a hits guy with Queen. I don't know Same. any I don't know any deep tracks. Some of the kind of Broadway type show tunes type stuff, I, I'm, it's just not my. If you like it, God bless you, but it's just not for me. But they are just massive. I mean, they are. Ma- you would have to say, as a touring act, they would be top five in the world with the numbers they could draw, and with America kind of being their their weakest market. But um, it just shows them behind the scenes, and they just talk about how much respect they have for Adam Lambert. And how good he is, and uh, you know they're selling out arenas left and right. And it's one of those instances. I mean, a lot of people sometimes complain when you have a different lead singer, but like if the lead singer's dead, there's nothing. There's literally nothing you can do. Uh, he just does a great job of it. I, I mean, to the point where I think I would go see them if they came, you know, near me. Uh, I think it'd be fun. Well, we've got a mutual friend who did see them in Vegas and said it was just insanely good insanely good and I, I yeah i would def, i'm like you i'm i'm a hits guy I, I don't care to own their records but i do like a lot of the hits and i would absolutely go to one of their shows when it talks about there was a reviewer said that um he was suspicious of them because their vocals their vocal harmonies were just too good and so it so they made a point to show them sound checking and all of them actually singing and it sounded just like it does you know in the show um man speaking of disappointments though so Roger Waters released his Us and Them concert, which our mutual friend Shannon and I went to see, which was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. He dug, he 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 hit that Animals record pretty hard, and like just the the visuals and everything, it was just groundbreaking. It was just amazing. And so the concert and the album are coming out in October, but he went ahead and released the concert digitally to rent and buy. So I was off work for a couple of days. The other night I rent, rented it. And let me tell you what, if there's anything that comes to those speakers that was live, I would be completely and totally blown away. This thing had to have been, they had to have gone in the studio and recorded everything. Everything sounds so good. You know, like like right now, I'm moving my, I'm moving my mouth up back from the, the microphone. That's going to give a different inflection. There's like none of that. You can't even hear the crowd. Um it's just very, very disappointing. I, and I've gone online, and some people are going, "Yeah, I don't know if this was exactly, uh, exactly live." And that's very frustrating to me. Like, I, you know, I know we like to all give Eddie Trunk a hard time, but I, I support him in his whole like canned vocals, and uh, you know, um, just be honest about it. You know, I, su- I support him to an extent, and what I mean by that is. If you're playing live, play live. Let us have the imperfections. Like Sam Phillips always said, you know, he likes the perfect imperfections. Right. You know, I, I'm cool with that. I don't care if you don't sound like you were in the studio. I don't care if, if you play a bad note. I don't care if you didn't hit the note as a vocalist. 
Let me hear it live. Right. What I don't agree with with Eddie Trunk is he says no backing tracks. Well, okay, sometimes it's necessary, and I'm not saying because they don't they can't do it live. I'm just saying maybe they don't have a keyboardist on the road, and they're not a keyboard band, but they have a keyboard in one of the songs, you know. But he's basically like all live all the time, no excuses, and I don't agree with all that. Um, but just like you were asking me about that Big Four uh, documentary, or not documentary, but that concert film you wanted to get, you asked me if I had it. And I said, no. I said, what stopped me from buying it? And I probably still should get it just because everything else, is, as far as I know, is live. But I have, and you asked me where I got this, I don't remember where, but Dave Mustaine re-recorded the vocals. And that's just weak. I mean, that that's stupid. I mean, Mustaine, we don't listen to your music because you're a good vocalist. No. You know? You can't sing, and I'm cool with that. I still like the way it sounds. So why you got to go try to make it perfect? Just give us give us your raw live vocals. I wish you could find where you got that because, like, I, like I, I I really need to know because I um I have been been looking to try to find some documentation of that because I have been on a. Oh, you can't find anything. When you I know I can't find anything. I haven't yet. Um, maybe I'm I'm searching for it the wrong way, but. I don't know. I'll um, try to look. Because I have been on a. Uh, not only have I been like massively into the cure lately, I've been on this. I about said mega mega death kick, a huge mega death kick and Metallica kick and Mastodon, um, uh, and um, anyway, I've bought like several of the um, Megadeth uh, Blu-rays. Um, at least the ones I've seen, trust me, he has not re-recorded the vocals. Um, but hey, speaking of them, uh, they've got they've just recorded 18 songs for a new album. Um, it's 15 originals and three covers, and obviously, obviously not all of those are going to be on there. But um, I would say that's probably like now that we've gotten past the Brian Fallon release, I would say that's which did not disappoint. I would say like that's my most anticipated album coming up because. That last Megadeth album like deserves to be like a top, it's like a top five album for them, I think. Well, I yeah, I tell I tell you what, I, and I agree. That was that was a phenomenal record for them, and it, and most of these bands when they put up new material, it's it's just not great anymore, you know. And that's any band; it's not just a thrash band; it's any band. Once they've been around, once you've been around twenty plus years or so, it's just not as good. They don't make the same kind of records, in my opinion. But that one, Dystopia, was very good. And one thing I like about with, uh, with what Mustaine said is he said everybody always says their, their new album's their best one. And he said, I'm not, it's not his best. He said that. Yeah, I read that article too. Yeah, but he, he put it in the top, he said he put it maybe like number five. Yeah. Which is still, maybe it is because Dystopia might be top five. Yeah. So maybe it is. But um, I, I respected the fact that it wasn't, oh, this is the best thing we've ever done. Because, man, that, that gets old every single time somebody puts out a new record. This is the best one we've ever done. Right. No, it, no, it's not. Yeah. We already know it's not going to be. And there's the rare, 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 rare occasion where it can be, but usually not. No, I mean, even the Stones' famous run had to come to an end, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, when you were talking about recording, though, um, and live vocals and all these things, I, I did... Uh, I was struck by one thing. I, I thought you'd appreciate this. I'm going to step back to Agnostic Front for a minute because when they were doing, um, God, I want to say it was the uh, the American Dream died that record, which was one before before the newest one. I thought this was a really cool idea. Some songs that Roger had worked on, 
with another guy he brought to the band and they already had several songs for the record but he this he took some records from something i think they're called the alligators whatever a side project that he had and he took a, a, a i guess his writing partner from there and he, he, he they did some songs were going to be on this record and roger wanted to take it back to the early days and just make it really sound pure and and what he did and i thought man i guess made me think even though it may not be the most complicated music ever, it does show that they are talented. They were able to pull this off. He presented it to the band, and they liked it. And I mean, they just went nuts for this material. It's about 10, 10 of the songs on the album recorded this way. He said, okay, you get to pra- play it, rehearse it two different times, and then you record it. And what they recorded, whatever it was, that was the take. And they were like, no, man, that's not good. I want to redo it. Nope, that's the take. And then he had to do the vocals the exact same way too. That's Practice interesting. Two times, and then you have you record it. You hit record. It, it's it's amazing, like how many different ways there are to skin a cat. Like you know, you hear about Mutt Lang, where it would take him three months to record one song, and like he would, they would cut tape for individual drum drum beats, you know. And then you have like uh, you're like saying that, like all right, you're going to rehearse it twice, and then we're going to take it. And then you hear about all these like. Some of these legendary albums, like it's a first take. Van Halen um, was was played live, you know, the first Van yeah, Halen. Yeah, and, and it's just amazing, like all these different ways. And then you have like you know Metallica, who takes so long to make an album, they obsess over it, obsess over, it, obsess over, it, and then they wind up like screwing screwing the recording up, not purposefully on uh, like Injustice for All, you know, taking the, the bass down. Death Magnetic, they spend, which I love that album. They spend all that time on it, and it's so compressed that it's like painful to listen to at times. But and, and but then you have these guys show up, and on the third time, we're going to take it, and it's going to be fine. Yeah, it's just not necessary often to do all that stuff because you know, like with with Agnostic Front, they you know when they recorded those first records, you know, they was going to the studio, they didn't know what they were doing, they hit record, and they all played it together, and that was the album. Then they, you know which he talks about this recording a record with Jamie Josta of Hatebreed when he's producing it, doing all the new technology. Cause it'd been several years since they had done one. It was just so weird to them. And even a hardcore band was doing all this piece and stuff together, different guys in different cities. And now they decided to do it the way they decided to do it. I thought that was a, that was a cool way. I always, that's one of the things I would love when you read or watch documentaries about bands here and the way they wanted to do things to make it, give it an original sound, to give it a raw sound. Um, it's really cool. Last thing I was just going to mention is I I watched this months ago and I never got around to it, so I can't even remember all about it. But a band that I'm not a fan of, but they do have a few songs that are good and actually a very talented band musically, and that's Duran Duran. They're good musicians, really good musicians. All of them can play, and they did a documentary. It came on, um, came on Showtime. And I did really, really enjoy that one. And it was uh, one of the coolest things about it is it saw they all crammed the, the car that they that they would tour in. They all crammed into this car and they played their first demo all sitting in the car, just laughing about it. And and how like Simon was making fun of the way his vocal sounded. Um, that was another just great <coughs> documentary. I mean, I, I love seeing the inner workings of these bands, seeing the relationships. Um, I, I really should be watching more music documentaries. I, 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 I don't do it enough. I watch a lot of events people I don't even necessarily like. 
Of course. And that, that's what I'm talking about. Just with, when I went to ones on the scenes, that that's fascinating when you see what was influencing that sound. Um, not all for me. Well, Chris, does that about cover everything? Well, I've got a couple of new releases. Okay. Uh, one is when, of course, we just talked about new releases, but a couple that I've been listening to. One is Tuck Smith and the Restless Hearts. You know, Tuck Smith, for anybody that doesn't know, he's from a band we talked about called The Biters. And they were kind of a throwback rock band, um, kind of T-Rex, a little bit of glam sound to them. They, his record... Tuck Smith and the Restless Hearts, his debut still hasn't come out yet. I, I don't know when. I, I would think it's going to, as far as I know, it's coming out this this year, uh, probably soon, because I've heard a single or two off of it. It's really good. But he did one. It's called Cover, Covers from the Quarantine. It's an EP. The uh, the most notable song, the one that, the best song on there, he does a cover of the great NXS song, Don't Change. Life on Mars, you know, Bowie. Great, great version there. He does Hard Luck Woman. Summertime Sadness and Behind Blue Eyes. That's a that's a really good EP if you want to hear a different take on some of those songs, especially that Don't Change songs. Nothing else. Go to it just to listen to Don't Change. But again, it's Tuck Smith and the Restless Hearts. And Tuck is T-U-K for people who have never listened to him. Yeah, Check him we, out. This, this had, is a really talented guy. We've had his guitar player, Ricky Dover, on the podcast. Yeah, really, really talented guy. I like his voice. He's got a unique sound. The other new album came out. And I don't know how I missed it. I've been waiting for it. And it's been out a few weeks now. And it completely surprised me. I didn't know it was out. But the new Airborne Toxic event. This this is one of my favorite bands. You know, they really are. He's, uh, uh, I just think the, his name is Mikhail Jolet. I think he's one of the, the most gifted lyricists going right now. He is, you can tell, a highly intelligent guy. The music is just, it's so, so good. This is their fifth record. You know, the last one they did, Dope Machines, which is possibly my favorite one. He wanted to make an electronic record. And so, yeah, it was different because it was electronic, but it was just a masterpiece. Well, the new one, the new one that they've come out is called Hollywood Park. And he this time he wanted to make a rock record. And... It is a concept album, but a concept album based on life. Now it makes a little bit more sense to me when not too long ago he was he had tweeted about the best concept records. I guess because he was probably on the finishing touches of this album, and I because I remember he, he named uh, Titus Andronicus, which I thought was super super cool. But he named the Monitor as one of one of his favorite ones. Well, this one is a straight ahead rock band. They don't have any of the, you know orchestral parts anymore the the female that was who was in the band she's not i don't know if she's out of the band completely now or she just wasn't on this album but this album's just a four piece it's a rock record and there's a kind of like nikki six did like you know they did that companion book to that first 6 a.m the heroin diaries well this is has a companion book and i'm gonna read it because i want to find out more about this so what this is about is and I'm pulling this up real quick, just read over because I haven't dug deep into what each song is about, um, what this whole thing is about. But his dad, this was the first record that that Jolay has done and that he, he's released in five years. And supposedly he had a very I guess he's had some tough years because he was grieving the loss of his father 
and it's an interesting relationship that he had a, he had with his father. Suppose I guess they both got very very close towards the end. Um, but I wasn't even even aware of this. Are, are David? Are you aware of? Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Signing on or sign on? Mm-mm. It looks like it's pronounced sign or sign on. No, sign on. I think sign on. S Y N A N O N. Well, what this was is an organ. I'm just read it right off of Wikipedia. Uh, and again, I hope I'm saying this right. Sign on was sign on organization was a violent cult, initially a drug rehabilitation program founded by Charles Chuck Diedrich. In 1958, Santa Monica, California, by the early 1960s, Sinanite had also become an alternative community, attracting people with its emphasis on self living a self-examined life as aided by group telling sessions that became known as Sinanon Game. Um, it ultimately became the church of, of Sinanon in 1970s and disbanded permanently, permanently in 1991 due to many criminal activities, including attempted murder of which members were convicted and legal problems and including his tax-free status. So obviously a very wacky organization that they had was well, Jolay grew up in that. And he was born in this cult and supposedly with what they did with the kids, it was the kids were separated from their parents and they were to be raised by the universe. So yes, yeah, like I said, some real wacky shit here. Um, but it talks about in this album as well, the escape. So I don't, that's why I want to read the book. Cause I don't know that the, the, the songs I'm going to pick up enough about it, but his dad was a drug addict who went there and eventually had, they had to escape this place. That sounds interesting. Yeah. So he has a companion book on it. And, uh, so it, this is a different, you know, a lot of times people make these concept records and they're based on, on some, whatever, some, you know, some made up story, uh, however they want to do it. But this is one about his life and a very, very interesting life. So I'm going to read the book and it'll, it'll make more sense of this album, but enough about the background of the album, the music. It's so, so good. Um, I just love every album this band puts out. If you've never listened to them, why not start with this one, the new one, and then go back. But this one's called Hollywood park. And early on, I can see it's probably going to be a contender for my album of the year. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to that. That's a very kind of wacky backstory, but, uh, uh, very few of these concept albums are actually based on personal experiences. So that I'm going to have to go listen. I like the first single that they released from it. Yeah. The, the ones too, if I, here, let me pull it up. Just look at it. Check these out, David, and anybody listening that, that single is called come on out which is a really good one. And I think that one's kind of about the escaping of, of that uh, cult. But the first track, Hollywood Park, is so, so good. And then there's one, all these engagements. But the whole record's good. Sounds good. Well, this was a fun one to do. Um, we will be back with you sooner rather than later with uh, uh, maybe a, an interview or a more topic-driven podcast. We just haven't done one in a while and wanted to throw one together. Um, and just talk about some of the current events. So uh, thank you all for listening. Take care, and we will uh, be talking to you soon.
Oh uh-huh.